James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered amongst the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high positions, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. It's the word of God. Good morning. Good morning. Wonderful to be with you again. If you'd uh, like to keep James 1 open, the, the Bible reading just for us, and uh, thank you for Ivan's prayers. Many of us love authenticity. Uh, if you love food and if you're Chinese, then you are a foodie. You might be particular at cooking or finding the most authentic Thai, Chinese, Indian or Italian cuisine or another one that you might like but I haven't mentioned because that's the best and the tastiest. If you like brand names in our clothes, cars or electrical goods, you might be prepared to pay extra for the real thing because you believe it is better than cheaper imitations. It's weighing up how much quality you want with how much you're willing to pay, how much it will cost. Well, that's how we had our discussion question. It's fair enough for us to say that all of us want authentic Christianity, a deep sense of connection with God that's real and satisfying and genuine loving relationships with each other. We're not interested in a Christianity that's fake or phony. So the book of James gives us real, authentic Christianity. It gives us a true picture of God and the right heart, the right actions, the right words that will please Him, which God wants to cultivate in us. But the authentic Christianity that James offers to us comes at a cost. He will challenge any superficiality, any worldliness or pride in us, so that we might humbly submit to God instead. James takes us right out of our comfort zone. 
in modern terms, he's maybe he's like one of those tough personal trainers. Maybe you go to the gym and you've got a personal trainer, or you go out to one of the sporting fields and you are in a personal training class. James is like one of those. He yells at you. He doesn't take excuses. He wants you to keep working harder for longer. He's not interested in average or mediocre or being just an inoffensive buddy. No, James wants us to be real and true before God. So as we look at James, the more that we want authentic Christianity, we have to be prepared to pay the cost of a high price in how we worship, think, act and speak. Uh, which James is the author? It's James, the brother of Jesus, uh, the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he had a key role if we look at the book of Acts in uh, chapter 15 as the church was disputing about uh, what does it look like for Gentiles to come into the church. Then James uh, put down a decisive judgment, which was crucial. And so James begins by preparing us to face some of the hardest realities in our lives. So firstly, joy in trials. James wants us to be ready to face trials and difficulties, to endure not for a short time, but for a long time, all the way to the end. And immediately is radical. Let's look now at verses 2 to 4. Consider a pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. For most of us, joy is the last thing on our minds in the face of painful trials. Maybe you've got a parent battling cancer, or a child sick in hospital and you're worried to death, or a marriage breakup, which just is gut-wrenching, or the death of a loved one that's happened. And so we might be experiencing right now fear or hurt or anguish, or maybe all of those because of what's happening to us or happening to people that we love. So, of course, what we're to be joyful about are not the trials itself, as if James is expecting us to be delighted about the suffering of loved ones. Not at all. No. Neither does joy always mean excited happiness, as if every moment you're jumping out of your skin. No, it doesn't. Joy can mean a quiet thankfulness to God because we can take heart that even though trials hurt so much, God is giving us a spiritual workout that is good for us. We take joy in the spiritual workout God's giving. But is joy actually possible in the midst of terrible anguish? Well, one of many examples that we can give about that is one of the great hymns in the Christian church. Actually, I should ask the music team whether you sing it here. If not, then add it to the list. It is well with my soul, a great old hymn. And when I learned the story behind this hymn, then it added new meaning every time we sang it in church. In 1873, a Christian lawyer from Chicago, Horatio Spafford, sent his wife and four daughters on a ship across to England ahead of him And he received the terrible news that due to the ship's collision, all of his four daughters died and only his wife survived. On the ship across to be reunited with his wife, he penned the words that were to become the famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. It goes like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, 
Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. I chose it such an old example, it's the 1800s, because it's a great one and it's remembered in church because of this great hymn. And many of our hymns are great stories behind them. Spafford was not rejoicing in the deaths of his dearly loved daughters. He must have been devastated. But he's joyful and thankful about what he has in Christ. His eternal security in Jesus is what allows him and us, in the midst of even painful loss, to say, it is well with my soul. And that's simultaneous, isn't it? We can say because of Jesus, it is well with my soul. I can be thankful for that. And on the other hand, experience, grief, both are true at the same time. They don't have to cancel each other out. But my security in Christ is well with my soul means that when I experience these trials, this pain, that doesn't have to cancel that out. They can both be true in the Christian life. Joy is also a gift that God gives us. So the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 is thankful for the Thessalonian Christians as they became imitators of the Apostles and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. They welcomed the message, Paul says, with joy given by the Holy Spirit. Both are true. It is well with my soul there is joy and there is even in suffering and pain. Well, perseverance here gives us a picture of someone carrying a heavy load for a long time. So uh, God increases perseverance in us. It's becoming spiritually fitter and stronger. We can think of going to the gym or sports, and of course you need your core strength and all of that sorts of things. But spiritually, God is giving us this workout. Becoming spiritually fitter and stronger, perseverance, able to endure more hardship for longer. And perseverance is not just overnight, it's not just instant. God is interested in pruning us and shaping us and moulding us, as hard and painful as that can be. So one day we will be complete, says verse 4. He's doing something so great in us in the end, we'll see the hardship was worth it. It's like that with hindsight, isn't it? During the suffering, it's painful and difficult and we want it to end, and that's natural and normal. It's only afterwards we can say, well, that wasn't fun, but it actually did great things. I've actually come out of that stronger and better. I've learned more from it. Well, facing trials of all sorts can create so many dilemmas for us. Uh, situations where we just don't know what to do. What's the right thing to do? What do I say? What do I think? So here in James, in verses 5 to 8, James directs us to ask God for wisdom, uh, especially as the Lord loves giving good gifts like that. It is a humble dependence on our Heavenly Father. But here James warns us of the problem of being double-minded. Uh, we have to qualify that doubts are part of our normal and human experience. In our weaknesses we become afraid. We're not always sure or certain. Even in our earnest prayers to God, we can have moments of doubt. Is God really listening? 
is you're going to answer this prayer. And we might really love God and want to live for Him, and yet at times have some doubts. And that's normal. That's Christian. That's part of our frailties. God understands and knows that. So here, the problem of double-mindedness is not doubt itself. (coughs) Double-mindedness is about our attitudes and our desires towards God. The problem of being double-minded is to be unsure about whether you really want God, whether you really want Him to work in you, whether you really want to do what He says. So in verse 8, James describes the double-minded man as unstable because he flip-flops or seesaws in his desire between God or something else. So it's not doubt, it's desire. Do you really want God? Yes. Then you go forward and trust Him as imperfect as that is. Being double-minded is to be inconsistent and to lack integrity. To have a desire or attitude problem. And if we're tempted to find our security in wealth or feel overly discouraged at our lack of wealth, the message of James is a great leveller. James makes the first of uh, many references to the poor and wealthy. Verses 9 to 11. Uh, poor Christians are spiritually rich and one day will be lifted up as they are exalted as heirs of a priceless inheritance. Uh, rich Christians are to remember that earthly wealth will be gone one day, so they are to humbly identify with the lowly and poor fellow Christians. And we have to say that in light of that, uh, here, you know, sitting in Sydney, compared to the majority of the world, we have to remember that we are fabulously rich and wealthy. We're in the top few percent in the world. I mean, you might not feel that rich, uh, especially when it comes to uh, spending or things get tight with money. But we are fabulously rich and wealthy compared to And that's where mission gives a great perspective, isn't it? It just opens your eyes to go, well, a lot of people have nothing. And James has many words to us as wealthy people. Uh, wealth is something that can be a tool used by God. It's not wrong. But wealth also has a way of tempting us to be double-minded. That is, to love and desire wealth and what it can buy. Wealth is a danger because it can crown out the things of God in our lives. So Jesus and the apostles do warn about it. And no wonder James actually speaks about it, just like everyone else. So this morning, brothers and sisters, we need to ask God to grant us such long-term and eternal perspective that wealth is only temporary and fades away. We're to use it for the kingdom. We're not to love it or hold on to it too much. And God is using trials, though painful, to shape us to completeness. Then we will have joy even in trials. We will look to him for strength and sustenance. And in moments of anguish, we need to ask him to keep us going. Grant us joy and wisdom, and he gives it and loves giving it. We don't have to have it all together. When times are tough, we turn to God and say, God, this is, this is killing me. I'm finding it hard. Give me all that I need. And that's real and authentic. Well, if we think of the Christian life, in sporting terms, it's not a 100-metre sprint. Uh, some of us might have really fast and love it, and that's great. But the Christian life is more like a long-distance race, like a marathon. And an event that takes a lot of effort 
which James wants us to finish, so secondly, enduring to the end. Well, at the end of this spiritual marathon that is the Christian life, there is the glorious eternal reward for everyone who finishes. Let's look at verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Every four years we have the Olympic Games. And the pinnacle of achievement for athletes is to be standing on the podium after their event, receiving a gold medal, the national anthem plays, there's tears streaming down their face of relief, of joy and vindication. All their hard work and sacrifices and pain has been worth it. How much greater will it be when every one of us as Christians, rich and poor, athletic, non-athletic, smart or simple, when we stand on the podium before all of humanity, receiving more than a gold medal which can be lost or forgotten or stolen, but we're receiving our crowns of life from the King of Kings, and there's tears of joy, relief and vindication. All of our hard work, sacrifices and pain have been worth it. And looking forward to this hope is one of the many factors that keeps us going, even if it's hard in the Christian life. As we need to endure to the end to finish the race and receive the crown, we need to have wise discernment as we face the various trials. Uh, If we work out who is responsible for what, uh, this affects how we handle different trials that come our way. And so what James says is that God does not tempt us. We cannot blame him for that. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So here we have to understand the difference between testing and temptation. In New Testament Greek, testing and temptation are the same word. But at times in the Bible, God and the devil seem to be making the same offers to people. But the motivations behind testing and temptation are completely different. Because God's character is that he cannot be tempted nor seduced by evil. Uh, There's no evil in him. So he does not tempt anyone. Instead, he tests people. That is... God puts us through trials with the purpose of strengthening us, teaching us to obey him, to hold on to what is right. His intent is to help. But, on the other hand, the devil tempts. That is, he has the purpose of making people fall into sin and disobeying God. His intent is not to help, but to hurt. His intent is malicious. He wants to make us fall so that he can thrive on our misery saying things like, look how hopeless you are. You gave in to that. You fell for it. You swallowed that. You're a failure. Why should God accept you? You just stumble and fall like that. God's intent is that I wanted you to have that spiritual workout so you'll be tougher, so that you'll be better and pleasing in my sight. Uh, Here in James chapter 1, James is not interested in the devil. Uh, Later in James chapter 4 verse 7, the devil's mentioned there because he's very real about the spiritual forces. He knows about spiritual warfare as the apostles did. 
But here in chapter 1, James wants to place the responsibility for sin squarely on the shoulders of each one of us. It's not everyone else's fault. It's your fault and my fault. We're not to make excuses. We're not to blame just other people. Because we are the ones who find sin attractive. Experiencing temptation itself is not sinful. Uh, you can't control what other people say to you, what they offer, offer you. But we are able to say yes or no. And when we say yes, taking the opportunities to sin, it's because our own desires wanted them. Not anyone else, us. Well, instead of God being the source of temptation, He's the, the giver of everything good. He's unchanging and reliable. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. The heavens and the world may change. Is this still on? How's that? People can change. Relationships with family and friends can go terribly sour. There can be falling out, isn't there? It? it can be terrible. But the one concept we have is God. The one who made all does not change. He's true to his character and his standards and promises he has made. The longer we go on in life is that we should be prepared for disappointment. Uh, people tell lies. People have no intention at times of keeping their promises. And that can be devastating. Even amongst Christians. Christians are not immune from lies or making mistakes or failures or saying, well, no, I can't I can't make that promise anymore. But God does not fail. He is our hope and our strength, even in the frailties of ourselves or people around us. So like the rain and the sun, God showers down blessings on us from above. We, look, we need look no further than ourselves to know this. God voluntarily created us. He gave us all that we have and are. And not just creating all of humanity, he's caused those who ch- he chose to be in his family, to be born again spiritually, for us to have new life in Christ. Creation and new creation. And he chose us through his gospel message, the message of Jesus, that we might be the first fruits, the finest of all that he has made. Well, as God gives himself to us in Christ, that we might be his forever. There is no greater guarantee of his love and faithfulness than Jesus. We can always look to that as the concrete display that God will not change. He will not undo his great work by letting us, leading us astray into sin. He does not then say, well, I've had a change of heart. You are very displeasing to me and you will, I'll kick you out of my kingdom right now. Which he would be perfectly entitled to do. But he points to his son and we point to his son and say, that's the reason. Not because I deserve it. Not because I've earned my way into heaven, but because he died for me and you sent him God and that's your promise. 
I know that you're not going to ditch me. I know you're not going to let me down or change your mind. So we need to be keep reminding ourselves of his goodness and power, which will stop us from bitterness. Because when we know that God is completely committed to my good, then even if he hurts me or lets me be hurt, I can feel that pain, but I know that he is in control. He does it for a good reason. He's not distant or uncaring like a remorseless dictator, but he's our loving Heavenly Father. He tests, he disciplines, he gives and takes away for my best and his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Praise you, our Heavenly Father, for uh, my dear friends, my brothers and sisters here. Thank you for their celebration of 32 years as a church. And in that 32 years, there have been many blessings. Uh, Many uh, people come to Christ, people grow, people equipped and uh, serving you in your kingdom, in your harvest field. And even in some of the difficulties that have happened in that history, you have been faithful and good. We pray that indeed we would be authentic Christians. We would hear the word of James, that we would be steadfast in our love for you and desire. Thank you, you know, of our doubts, our frailties, our temptations. Help us to, uh, by the power of your spirit, rightly see our opportunities, the temptations, the difficulties that we face. Help us to own up, to be real and take responsibility. Help us to go forward, knowing of the crown of life that is ours, to walk the faithful path you have set out for us. We pray this not just for ourselves, but for your glory and your kingdom. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.